Good evening. Greetings from your sister church, Covenant Fellowship Church in Stuttgart, Germany. Uh, We're so privileged to be here with you tonight um, to worship the Lord together. Uh, Our reading of scripture today is Psalm 1. If you would, please turn there with me as we read the the word of the Lord together. This is the inspired, infallible, inerrant word of God from the first psalm. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. May he bless our study of it tonight. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word that you have given to us, that we, your people, need not wander blind in this earthly pilgrimage, but that we have your word that we can look to, that we can study, that we can meditate upon. Lord, we thank you for how your Holy Spirit works powerfully through the reading of your word, through the preaching of your word. And Lord, we pray that you would do that tonight, that you would work uh, in all of us as we study the first psalm, that you would give us a renewed uh, hatred for and fear of sin and disobedience towards you, that you would give us a renewed love of your law, of your word, and that you would cause us to set our eyes upon our Savior and your Son, Jesus Christ. We pray these things in his name. Amen. The first psalm lays out two different paths or ways to the reader, one of which every single person will travel to the end of. On the one hand is the way of the wicked, the constant temptation that we face from our flesh, from the world, and from Satan and his minions. It always seeks us out, alternating between enticing us with the seemingly pleasant fruit of sin and casting doubt on the goodness or even the very existence of God. Those who are lured into this way of life and persist in it until the end may distract themselves with temporary pleasures in this life, they will eventually pay a terrible and eternal price. The other path, the way of the righteous, is one with far fewer travelers. It is a life of faithfulness. It is a life 
that acknowledges that the eternal, inspired, inerrant word of God is to be our one and only standard for life. It is a light that recognizes our failure to live up to the law of God and clings to Christ, his atonement, and his righteousness. And it is a life that looks forward to eternal glory in the presence of our God. The two ways this psalm lays out for us, like a fork on the road, may start out close together, but they diverge to two completely different ends. Our sermon tonight as we study this text will be divided into three main points. Firstly, the slippery slope of sin. Secondly, the firm foundation of the word. And third, the final harvest. That's the slippery slope of sin, the firm foundation of the word, and the final harvest. Let's look at verse 1 again together. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. We might expect that the psalmist, when writing this psalm, would begin with what we ought to do rather than what we ought not to do. Shouldn't more attention be given to that which is good than to that which is evil? Yet the psalmist starts rather the other way around, beginning his definition of the blessed man not by what he does, but by what he does not do. John Calvin, in his commentary on the Psalms, points out the logic that he finds behind this order, where he says, No man can be duly animated to the fear and service of God and to the study of his law until he is firmly persuaded that all the ungodly are miserable and that they who do not withdraw from their company shall be involved in the same destruction with them. The ways of the world, its pleasures and its riches, its fame and its so-called freedom are deeply, deeply attractive to our sinful flesh. It is all too easy for us to, in the moment, put all the warnings against sin to the side just long enough to taste the forbidden fruit that is held in front of us. Therefore, it is absolutely vital for us to think and to speak plainly regarding sin. It is evil. It blasphemes God, and it brings only death. We must really, truly realize this, or we will never flee sin and pursue holiness the way that we ought to. From this verse, we can see that there is a logical order to sin. One does not go from a life of uprightness and God-fearing instantaneously to a life of rebellion against and hatred of God. Rather, we gradually slide into sin, slow enough that our consciences put up no great fights, but fast enough that before we realize it, we have reached rock bottom. 
the psalmist lists three different actions that illustrate this slippery slope. Walking in the counsel of the wicked, standing in the way of sinners, and sitting in the seat of scoffers. The metaphor of the gradual loss of momentum and growth of permanence that is shown in walking, standing, and sitting is paired with growth in the severity of the sin. This displays to us that the more seared and comfortable a conscience becomes with sin, the harder it is to break free from it apart from the miraculous work of the Holy Spirit. The first pairing warns us against walking in the counsel of the wicked. As we walk on this pilgrimage that we're all on towards our eternal destination, we walk alongside other people. None of us live this life in isolation, but rather in relationship with family, with friends, with co-workers, with all sorts of people. We often absorb the wisdom and values and attributes of these people and gradually become more like them as they become more like us. This can be a great thing when these people are brothers and sisters in Christ who love the Lord and His Word. But it is intensely dangerous when it means that we are being influenced by those who are not of God. Yes, God has not taken us out of this world. Yes, we are called to be a light in it. Yes, we are called to love everyone, even our enemies. No, we are not called to live in hermit-like monastic isolation. But it is imperative that what shapes and guides our lives is not the world, but the Word of God and our brothers and sisters in Christ insofar as they embody it. Once we start to allow ourselves to be influenced by those in the world regarding what we should desire or how we should live or what we should believe, we begin to go down a very dark path. Worldly wisdom can sound reasonable and even wise in this life, but its ultimate end is destruction. Only the word of God is, according to Paul in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17, breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. How dangerous is it for us if we rely on the world to teach, reprove, correct, and train us. Secondly, we are warned against standing in the way of sinners. Here we should note that progress has stopped. There's no more walking involved. This is beyond entertaining fellowship or counsel with sinners to an active partaking in their lifestyle. When a person has reached this point they are not necessarily set against God in their minds, and they often think of this state as just being temporary, with belief in God and His law maintained. But in practice, life is lived as if God were non-existent. 
The person who has reached this point has allowed the world to teach and to shape them, to implant its values deep in their heart. This is a particularly powerful process because the desires of our flesh and the desire of the enemy are in full accord with those of the world. The conscience of the person in this state is overwhelmed by the voices of these three sources of temptation and succumbs. The desires of the flesh with this encouragement from the world and Satan are followed with all of the terrible consequences that come from that. The ultimate end of life to glorify God and enjoy him forever is forgotten in favor of the momentary pleasures of the present. The conscience progresses from being drowned out to being seared, and the sinful flesh progresses from suitor to master. And what would have appeared terrible before slowly becomes desirable. Christians, when we find ourselves in this place where sin has become habitual and where we find ourselves numbed to its effects, we must flee. It is not enough to merely stop progressing in that direction of sinful living, but we must flee in the opposite direction. We must act in accordance not with what we feel, but with what we know from the word of God. We must ask the Holy Spirit to grant us a hatred of sin and a desire for righteousness and cling to Christ and his righteousness as our hope. Thirdly, we are warned against sitting in the seat of scoffers. This is the final stage where the slide down into wickedness is finished and there is no more fighting against sin or intentions of future return to the way of righteousness. The person in this state has a heart that has gone beyond just being numb to being thoroughly hardened. The wisdom of the world becomes the ultimate standard by which we live our lives, by which that person lives their lives. The man who sits in the seat of scoffers has passed far beyond flirting with sin or engaging in wickedness discreetly. He openly denies that which is true. Indeed, he mocks and hates it. He despises God and his commandments as well as his people. There is no place that is more dangerous for an individual than this. Though in their minds, scoffers sit on a highly exalted throne of wisdom and insight, in reality, they teeter on the edge of a cliff and they will certainly fall to their complete and utter destruction unless the Holy Spirit works a miracle in their hearts and they repent of their sins in humility. Do you find yourself portrayed in any of these three steps? Do you secretly long to fit in with or enjoy the pleasures of sinners? Do you actively live a life of sin, suppressing the protestations of your conscience? Or do you openly or secretly mock God, God forbid, and despise his people? If any of these are true of you, then I beg of you, repent 
Flee from what is evil. Cling to what is good. Stop listening to the lurings of your heart, of Satan, of the world. No matter how great the allure of sin may be, it is poison and it will kill you. Only the gospel, as it is found in the word of God, gives life. Only Jesus can save you from your sin. Take hold of him as your savior today. That brings us to our second point, the firm foundation of faith. What is the other way after we have examined this this difficult, indeed even depressing first way? How can we avoid that slippery slope? What is the description of the one who is blessed? Rather than using three different metaphors to parallel the instability and doom of the life of wickedness, the psalmist used just one in order to show the stability and steadfastness of the life lived according to God's word. It says, But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. What a beautiful phrase that is. His delight is in the law of the Lord. May that be said about all of us. When the psalmist here says the law of the Lord, he is first referring to the Mosaic law, but also to the entirety of Scripture. All parts of God's word are deserving of our delight and point us toward the God we should love and worship. A love for the word of God, a hunger for it, and faithfulness in reading it and meditating on it and living it out is the way of righteousness. When the psalmist says he meditates day and night, most commentators believe that it is a reference to God's instructions to Joshua in all the way back in Joshua chapter 1, verse 8, where he says, This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have good success. What does it really mean that we should meditate day and night? I think that the Westminster Larger Catechism explains it beautifully in answer 157, where it says, The holy scriptures are to be read with an high and reverent esteem of them, with a firm persuasion that they are the very word of God, and that he only can enable us to understand them, with desire to know, believe, and obey the will of God revealed in them, with diligence and attention to the matter and scope of them, with meditation, application, self-denial, and prayer. The word of God should be at the center of every day of our lives. We should hear it preached every Lord's Day. We should engage with it both privately and along with our families throughout the week. There is nothing that is more valuable than or that should or can replace the Word of God in our lives. 
when we are saturated with the Word in this way, how could it not shape us? For the Holy Spirit is always working through the Word of God in the heart of the believer. And what is the result of this Word-saturated life? The psalmist goes on to tell us. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season. A life that is saturated in the word is one that is growing in the knowledge of God, one that is growing in love for their neighbor, and one that is growing in hope for the life that is to come. The believer who delights in the law of the Lord is deeply rooted like a tree, refreshed and upheld by the stream of water that is the Holy Spirit, yielding the fruit thereof as he is sanctified by the Holy Spirit. When the storms of this life come, and they will come, whether they are trials, sufferings, or persecutions, the believer who is rooted in the word endures. When the drought of depression or exhaustion or burnout comes, the believer can still draw the water of life from the streams of the Holy Spirit. Church, what about you? Do you delight in the Word of God? Are you regularly reading, hearing it taught, meditating on it, do you let it shape your life and change your opinions? Do you find your foundation in it and what it shows and tells us about Christ and his finished work on the cross? If we are all honest with ourselves, if I'm honest with myself, we all know that we have failed. We have walked in the counsel of the wicked. We have stood in the way of sinners at times, and maybe we've even sat in the seat of scoffers. We have failed to delight in the law of the Lord, instead delighting in the things of the world and what pleases our flesh. We have failed to meditate on the word of God, preferring to spend our time on the cheap pleasures and distractions of this life instead of the matters of eternity. If we were to be judged on the basis of Psalm 1, we would all fail, and we would fail dismally. But praise be to God that when the psalmist wrote, Blessed is the man, he was describing a real man who lived the life that he exhorts us to, who abstained from sin absolutely, who delighted in the law of the Lord and who meditated on it day and night, the Lord Jesus Christ. It is because of his righteousness, his sacrifice, and his resurrection that we can look forward to enjoying the promises of this psalm. It is because of him and his Holy Spirit that he gives to us that we can already in this life begin to love the law of God however imperfectly and begin to live in accordance with it. And though of a graph 
were made of our spiritual growth, it would probably look more like a slowly ascending mountain range than a straight upward ramp. We know that the Holy Spirit is changing us and growing fruit in our lives according to God's perfect timing. That brings us to our third and final point, the final harvest. The psalmist continues writing, Its leaf does not wither, that is the tree, and all that he does, he prospers. As believers, we have the blessed hope and assurance that we can know with certainty that the sufferings and trials of this life will not destroy us. We know that God is directing all things for our growth spiritually, that we might be made ready for, <clears throat> for eternity in his presence. As Paul says in Romans chapter 8, verse 28, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. With the knowledge of this truth, we can rest in Christ. When we are confronted with our sinfulness, with our failures, we do not have to be overwhelmed, but we can flee to the cross in faith that Christ's death is sufficient for us. And this is not just our hope for this life. As the psalmist says, the leaf of the blessed man does not wither. Though our bodies may and will die and become dust, we know that the moment we die in this life, that we are taken up to be in the presence of God. We know that on the last day, our bodies will be resurrected. And we know that we will see and take part in a new heaven and new earth where there is no more pain and no more tears and where we will see all the saints who have gone before us. What an amazing hope this is. What an awesome God we have. May he be praised forever and ever. So what then are those who go down the wrong path compared to? The furthest thing possible from a deeply rooted, fruit-bearing tree. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Every Israelite would have been deeply acquainted with chaff. Chaff is the scaly outer layer of grain. It's inedible, and traditionally it was separated from the grain through a process called threshing, where the grain is pounded and loosened, and winnowing, where the grain was tossed in the air, with the good grain falling back down into the basket and the chaff being driven off by the wind. We can find chaff used as a metaphor in the same way in Hosea chapter 13, verse 3, when he is speaking about the kingdom of Israel and its offering of human sacrifices. Therefore, they shall be as the morning cloud and as the early dew that passeth away, 
as the chaff that is driven with the whirlwind out of the floor and as the smoke out of the chimney. That the wicked are compared to chaff and to smoke out of a chimney has two crucial implications. Firstly, the fruit of their lives is worthless. It is easy for us to look at the lives of frivolous celebrities or unjust rulers or corrupt or ruthless businessmen and to envy them, their success and the ease of the lives that they live. Yet all of their wealth and their power and their fame is nothing but fancy decorations on an empty and falling apart house that is teetering at the point of collapse. The truth is that the division between those who love God and those who are opposed to Him is not just in the eternal future, but it is also here in the present. We as believers have the great honor and deep comfort of knowing that we live our lives to the glory of God. There is deep worth and meaning even in the day-to-day of the most menial of tasks. Yet for the unbeliever, the opposite is true. Everything they do in this life heaps up condemnation for themselves, and not even the smallest remnant of it will be left in the future. The second thing we see from the chaff metaphor is the ultimate destruction of the wicked. See, it is not just the works of the wicked that are doomed to destruction, but the wicked themselves. All those who persist in a life of rebellion, blaspheming God and refusing to live according to his law, who refuse to repent and believe in his son, they have nothing to look forward to apart from the judgment of God and eternal punishment. Just as the chaff or smoke is blown away by the wind or burned up by the fire, so the wicked will be separated from everything that they hold dear. And they will suffer the just and terrible consequences of their deeds. If this makes you tremble, if it makes you uncomfortable, it should. There is nothing that is more deserving of fear and trembling than the justice of God when it encounters the wickedness of the human heart. There is no one in this room, myself included, who does not deserve to be cast out from God's presence and punished forever. Yet for those of us who are in Christ, we can take comfort. Nay, we can rejoice that God sent His Son to take on humanity, to live a perfect life, to be that blessed man, to die on the cross in our place, and to rise again. He regenerated us through His Holy Spirit 
that we might have saving faith in the work of His Son and repent of our sins so that we can be saved, not by our own works, but in spite of them. Have you experienced this grace? Have you been saved by the work of Christ? Do you delight in the law of the Lord? And are you firmly planted and watered by the Holy Spirit? Or are you walking in the counsel of the wicked, standing in the place of sinners, or sitting in the seat of scoffers, waiting to be swept away by the wind of the wrath of God? For those of us who are believers, let us rejoice in the free gift of salvation that we have received. Let us find comfort in the promises of God to us, in the finished work of Christ, and live a life of obedience out of the hope and joy for the future that we have. Let us truly delight in the Word of God. Let us spend time reading it, meditating on it, discussing it with our family and friends. May we let it be the thing that our lives revolve around. If you are not a believer, however, then there is no better time to repent of your sins and to turn to Christ than right now. Don't wait. Don't let your heart deceive you into putting it off to another day so you can taste just one more taste of that forbidden fruit of sin. Look, however painful it might be, on your sinfulness and your ultimate destiny apart from Christ and run to and cling to him that you might be saved. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you and praise you that though you are a perfectly just and all-powerful God who had every reason to demand our perfect obedience and that we failed miserably to live up to that standard that you are also a God who is full of grace and mercy that you sent your son to live a perfect life on our behalf and to die for our sins we praise you and thank you for this wonderful gift we pray that you would never let us forget about it or take it for granted but that we would live every day as if we believed in our heart of hearts that it was true, that it would be the very center purpose, the very center reason uh, for our lives and for our actions. Lord, we, we thank you and praise you for your goodness and your kindness and your mercy and your grace. And we pray all these things in the name of your Son and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Now if you would,